So we've started this uh, new series. Um, If you weren't able to be here last week, you can download the first. We're looking at this uh, book of the Bible, 1 Peter, Peter, uh, two letters attributed to Peter. First one uh, we see is written um, to a group of people, uh, and we see that the group of people are geographically identified, and they are also identified by the kind of people that they are. We see that right at the very beginning Uh, of the letter, and that's our foundation. Really, we understand who it is who's receiving this first letter. Uh, Inevitably, when you think about how the Bible is structured, people who are the first recipients of a particular message are crucial to what the message is all about, aren't they? That doesn't mean that it hasn't got a message for us today. Of course not. This is the living Word of God, but by understanding where the individuals who first were located, their particular situation, what was going on in their particular situation, who they were, understanding that helps us to then reflect, well, what about how our lives reflect elements of their situation and therefore how this can particularly speak to us today. That's one of the things that we would be encouraging you to do as we travel through the Bible. And so we come to this first um, chapter of 1 Peter and we see that we see um, a technical phrase which is used in verse 1, to God's elect exiles scattered through, throughout the provinces of. If Danny, if we could get that uh, first Uh, verse up, that'd be great. So God's elect were seeing that this particular letter is being sent to people who are by heritage, by birth. Uh, Perhaps they've never lived, perhaps they're children of children. Uh, They've only ever lived in this particular location, but they are by heritage Jews. Uh, That's the scattered, the word that we see there is the diaspora, the people who are scattered And therefore, they have this heritage of being the elect of God, God's elect, the people who are connected uh, by birthright to the Old Testament. We later on see that they are identified as believers because they've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So something has gone on in their lives. They are by heritage Jews, but they have now become followers of Jesus. They have been compelled by the message that they have, been, that they have received. The other thing that we see is that the location that they're in, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, is now uh, modern-day Turkey. It's on that piece of land that sits between Asia and Europe. And uh, what, by, what we understand by that, uh, that geographical reference, is that these individuals uh, are not living in the historical homeland of God's people in uh, Judea, Palestine, but they are living in uh, a very uh, cosmopolitan, uh, Greek-influenced trading center. All of these uh, locations that are identified are significant cosmopolitan trading centers during the first uh, century uh, uh, following Jesus, during the time of the Roman Empire. So what we're seeing is people who have been totally immersed in what we would describe today as modern life, life as was being defined by the cut and thrust 
of trading and the reality of business, the reality of commerce, the reality of trades, whether you were a, perhaps a carpenter or a stonemason, you were perhaps a freed worker, you were part of this group of people who were living with this heritage and now living in a location which is just modern, if we use that word, to try to locate it for our understanding today. That's our situation, isn't it? Now, for some of us, I guess, here this afternoon, we would say, well, yeah, I'm living in the world as we see it today. We, possibly some of you wouldn't describe it as modern anymore. You'd make, you would want to say it's not modern, we're postmodern. But whatever it is, we are now living in the reality of the world today. We're surrounded by what is the leading edge, cutting edge aspects of commerce, trade, all of those things that are part of our day-to-day existence. Pretty much all of us are going to tomorrow be involved in some sort of connection with the cut and thrust of life today. So straight away we've got a connection here, haven't we? I guess for a group gathering uh, here this afternoon, some of us would relate to in a deeper way, and some of us might say, no, I'm still an observer of this, by this second distinction. The second distinction is that that's where they are. The, second, the first distinction is that's where they are geographically, in lots of ways similar to us. The second distinction is that the recipients of this letter are committed, they have been compelled by the message of Jesus. Now, perhaps we didn't make this clear last week, but that is a huge thing that has gone on. From a heritage which was Jewish a huge, long, distant heritage, something that has been passed down from generation to generation, something which for many of them, they might not be um, day-to-day living and observing the particular demands of that, um, that faith. They might be eating a variety of foods. They might not be observing in the ways that historically uh, the uh, Orthodox Jewish heritage would, but but they certainly would carry that. And now Jesus and the message of Jesus has broken in. Paul makes it clear that um, he is primarily called to address the gospel to those who are outside of the Jewish faith, the Gentiles. Peter's task as a missionary was primarily to Jews, and that's why he's writing to this group of people. They have been changed They have been compelled by this message. That's the introduction that we see. So some of us would say, I know what that is. (laughs) I know what it is to be compelled. Jesus has engaged with my heart, with my mind, with every aspect of my life. I am not, all of us would say, who who would say that we're compelled to be believers in Jesus, all all of us would admit to the reality that the compelling message of Jesus has not infiltrated every aspect of our lives as it should, but we're certainly on a journey of that kind of transition. So wherever we are, whether we're just starting on that journey, there would be a recipients of this letter who would fall into that, that category. There would be recipients of this letter who perhaps for a few years now have been followers of Jesus. 
a number of years after Jesus has ministered in the world, so there would even be those who have been believers in Jesus for quite some time by now, quite possibly, as recipients of this message. We see that as um, Peter opens up this indication of who he's writing to, we now see in verse 3, which is what we're looking at this afternoon, we now see that he moves. Uh, And he introduces um, really three stages that we want to work through this afternoon. He's introducing the foundations for the rest of the letter. He's saying, right now, I'm going to talk about all sorts of things, and over these next period of time, we're going to be talking about all sorts of ways in which the compelling message of of Jesus shapes our lives in our thinking, how we respond to various situations. But for now, let's create the foundation, the why. Why, here's the question, why is this message of Jesus compelling? Why is it worthwhile following? That's, that's the starting point that Peter introduces. I guess for many, it would be a reminder. They know this already. They've already received and been compelled by this message, and they're being told it again in this letter. That's, that's ha- at least an indicator of how we need to respond, isn't it? There are many aspects about the message of of the gospel which we just need to be reminded about on an ongoing basis. Don't forget this. Don't forget that this is the foundation because because we are so wrapped up in the world that we live in. Because we are so taken up by the issues of trade and commerce and jobs and and all of the other pressures of life, there are moments where we need that stop. Just be reminded. So let's see how Peter reminds this particular group of people uh, of the uh, of the impact of Jesus. Firstly, we see in in verse 3, we see, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's an interesting uh, phrase that is used at that particular point in time. It seems as though there is a shift that is taking place, and many people have got a bit confused with this particular phrase. Does this mean that Jesus is somehow... um, God is somehow the God of Jesus, distinct from Jesus himself. Is Jesus not God? Uh, And in actual fact, God is God, and he's the God of Jesus. There will be some confusion. I want to just work out what's going on here, because there is a shift that has taken place. The first thing we see in verse 2 is this. What we describe as God in Christian terms, is laid out for us. We see God the Father, we see the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and uh, by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus, our obedience is, is worked out. We see God in His being described in verse 2. We now move in verse 3 from the description of what God is like to, if you like, some of the function 
of how God works. We see that there is a relationship that is established in that one trinity, that mystery that we can't understand, that relationship between Father and Son and Holy Spirit, the divine trinity, we see that there is a sense in which Jesus is servant, subordinate to the Father. Now, before we get confused by that, and before we think that that sounds strange, we need to be reminded that that is exactly what Jesus says He is again and again and again through His ministry in the world. He comes along and He says again and again, I have come to do the will of the Father. I have come to be obedient to the Father. There is a sense in which ultimately um, it is made very clear that the Father is going to all elevate the Son and honor Him and raise, his ne- raise Him above so that He carries the name of God. He, is, he came from heaven. He returns to heaven. He is intrinsic within the Godhead. Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. All of those things are true, but there is a sense in which Jesus is obedient to the Father. Now that statement has implications in this little line for us. Because what it actually says is, praise be to the God and Father of Jesus Christ. Well, there's another identifier in there, isn't there? It actually says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the way in which Jesus becomes servant-like towards his Father, subservient to his Father, in exactly the same way, those who have become uh, sprinkled by the blood of Jesus become obedient to, to Jesus as he becomes our Lord. The lordship of Jesus, the idea that Jesus is Lord of our lives, is communicated to us in that little sentence. It says, yes, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're all working together in establishing our salvation. That's how it works. They're all together in it. But then it's worked out by the Son being obedient to the Father and us then becoming obedient to the Son. And that is worked out, as we see, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. In other words, yours and my ability, yours and my ability to be obedient to Jesus is worked out by the Spirit working in us. It's not by our determined efforts. (laughs) It's by God's Spirit working in us. And it's kind of like this. It's kind of, we are called to live in a particular way. Of course we are. But as soon as we take any steps forward, our praise to that God and Father is saying, thank you because you've enabled me to do what, humanly speaking, I have no power to do. That has massive implications for all of us. Perhaps you're thinking about the idea of the Christian faith. 
and considering whether you would ever have any ability to be a follower of Jesus. And I would say to you, do you know what? You don't. I don't. None of us in our individual state have any ability to be obedient to Jesus. But because our obedience to Jesus is empowered by the power of God in the Holy Spirit, then we all have the power to little by little become obedient to Jesus. Isn't that great news? That's how it works, because we become, like Jesus was, obedient to that higher authority, the Lordship of Christ. Secondly, we see that that Lordship is not just a kind of imposition. It is filled with a compelling hope. A compelling hope. Look at how we say how this is described. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Just one of the great things about this letter is it is just packed with amazing ideas. You know, we could, we could quite honestly almost take it a verse at a time and spend the next five years working through this letter because it is jam-packed with ideas. Just go home and read it and think about what is this really saying? We are born, a new birth, we are born into an inheritance. Inheritances are amazing things, aren't they? They cause all sorts of um, pleasure. Obviously, there is always generally a sadness which is contained within it. Isn't it interesting that generally in our context, there always needs to be a death for an inheritance to be enacted? It's exactly the same in the idea of the gospel. There needs to be a death for an inheritance to be enacted. It's the death of Jesus. We've already told that in verse 2. The death of Jesus enacts the inheritance. It becomes our inheritance. So we are born into an inheritance. Have you ever thought about that deeply? We think about the idea that The Christian faith is, yes, there's this hope. There's this hope that finally, one day, I'll see Jesus. I will be, however we want to describe heaven, I will be in heaven. Ultimately, the Bible describes a new heaven and a new earth, a new established, beautiful place. But it's not a case that we're just going to go and live there. We're not going to go and just live there. An inheritance says, a piece of this is yours. A piece of this is yours. 
And we think about heaven as being, I'll finally get into that place that belongs to God. This says the reality of our inheritance is that you have a piece of that heaven. You have for you something which is yours. One of the great things about an inheritance is that once it becomes yours, it is yours, isn't it? It's truly yours. Okay, without all of the issues of, you know, things being contested and all of that kind of thing, let's assume that all of that just works its way out. It becomes truly, completely yours. That's what an inheritance is. That's a great hope, isn't it? What kind of inheritance is it? It is eternally good. It's eternally good. Everything that we get in this world, everything that we receive, well, as it describes it here, it perishes, spoils, or fades, doesn't it? Everything that we have in one way or another wears out. It really does. We could get kind of technical and say, well, the things that don't, well, uh, everything, everything ultimately is devalued in some way. Those inheritances that are kind of untouchable, in 50, 60 years, the reality is that they are not worth what they were once. Everything is declining. Everything is decaying. Do you ever feel as though the world that we live in is just kind of crumbling around us? We're living in a world which is worried about that, aren't we? We're living in a world which is concerned about the fact that we live in a world which has limited resources. And and even when we use up those resources, we seem to be doing more damage to the world that we live in. What a conundrum. (laughs) Here's these resources fossil fuels. We've thought that they've been great resources. They have been great resources, but we live in a paradox that even when we use those great resources, we are using them up, and we are also, it seems now, we we understand, actually creating more of a crisis in the world in which we live in. Imagine a world which isn't like that. Imagine a world which isn't, as we use resources, becoming diminished. Neither as we use resources is it causing damage around. That's the kind of description that uh, Peter is making of what this inheritance is. It's a place which is not perishing, spoiling, or fading. It's a place of astounding uh, beauty and sufficiency and satisfaction. So the reality is it's something which is worth having isn't it? It's an inheritance which is worth having. And it is secured how? We're told it is secured, uh, our living hope is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We sing some great songs here. Uh, One of the songs which is wonderful, it's true, uh, my hope is built on nothing, nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's great. That's absolutely true. <laughs> but you know, what 
we're reminded of again and again is the death of Jesus is useless if it wasn't for the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he's just another dead man. But what do we see? Why is the resurrection of Jesus securing for this inheritance? Because what we see in Jesus is somebody who has been effectively um, crushed. He has been, if we like, spoiled by this world. He has perished in this world. He has died in this world. In other words, the reality of this world has won. But what we then see is that the resurrection of Jesus restores what was broken. Did Jesus rise from the dead? According to the Bible, yes. According to the eyewitnesses, yes. It's what our faith is absolutely built on. But don't forget that there were others who rose from the dead. Jesus raised others from the dead. Lazarus was raised from the dead. But he died again. Jesus is the one individual in all of history whose resurrection carries significance for us because in his resurrection we can say we're safe because he didn't die again. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus is not spoiled, is not perishing, is not fading away. He is not getting less. Our mortal bodies are decaying. You might, you might have the privilege right at this moment in time of being on the incline. You might still be young enough to still be on the incline. Your, your body might still be developing, improving. You might be getting faster. You might be getting smarter. You might be getting all stronger. You might be increasing in your stamina. All of those things are great. The reality is it will not last. It will decline because that is the reality of our being. But Jesus' resurrection and His eternal establishment in that being tells us that the hope, the living hope that we have is that kind of hope that doesn't decline. Jesus isn't getting slower in his human form, in, in, in the eternal dimension. He's not getting less. You know, his, 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 in, in human terms, his eyesight isn't going. The body that he rose again in his perfected body is established for all of eternity. That means that for you and me, Peter is saying, that's what we've got. That's your inheritance. That's the hope that we have. What's more, that kind of hope has a compelling security. It has a compelling security. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. It's kept in heaven for you. In other words, there are aspects of that inheritance which you will not see, I will not see, until, as this um, verse describes, until it is revealed in the last time. It's kept in heaven. It's good things. 
It's an inheritance. It's a piece of real estate in the eternal dimension of God's, God's perfect world. That's riches beyond belief. It is health. It is prosperity. It is all of those amazing good things. Now, if that inheritance is seen fully in this world, then it's going to fade away again, isn't it? It's going to fall apart again. That's why when we get confused and we try to drag some of those riches, some of those issues of perfect health, and we try to drag them from there and we say it's, it's for us now, we get confused. We actually get disappointed because actually our health doesn't eternally improve. We don't, and of course, God might bless us as He did Lazarus, remarkably, with, with health in this world for a period of time. He might restore us from, from a broken situation of health. He might provide us with, with uh, prosperity in this world, but it's all only temporary. The real inheritance, the real health, the real prosperity is seen in that eternal dim- dimension. And Peter says, this living hope is revealed to us in the last time. It's kept in heaven for you. I want it kept in heaven because the, the bank vaults of this world aren't secure enough to keep it. I want it kept in heaven. How is it protected? It's through faith. We have received it through faith. And we are shielded by God's power. I reckon that probably Peter is using that kind of Roman picture of shielding. Uh, There's the the testudo, uh, the, 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 the testudo formation, You've, you'll have seen it, I'm sure, where um, Roman soldiers would form, it actually means the tortoise formation, and they create for themselves this shielded formation with the shields above, the shields around, and the soldiers move forward. Uh, they are totally protected as they move forward. They are shielded as they move forward. Is it comfortable? No, it's not comfortable. They're getting things reined in on them all over the place. They're getting battered, but they're safe. That's the idea that Peter is saying. He's preparing his his recipients of this letter to say, you remember that your security is shielded by the power of God. It's shielded by the power of God. Do you sometimes feel, do I sometimes feel that I I am on shaky ground? I feel as though I'm not sure whether I can carry on tomorrow. I feel as though my, my, my journey of faith is crumbling. I'm not sure whether I'm going to make it through another day. I'm not sure whether I'm going to see that inheritance 
You need to remember, I need to remember, I need to stop, I need to look in the mirror, I need to have a word with myself and say, what does God tell me in His Word? God tells me in His Word that it is not dependent on me because the shield is not my shield, it's the power of God that is shielding my inheritance. Therefore, it is safe. It's guaranteed. Even if the, in metaphoric terms, even if the wheel falls off in this world, even if health or prosperity or security actually do fall apart. That's the great thing. If the inheritance is in heaven, I can afford to lose those temporary things in this world because the security is protected by the power of God in heaven. Why is this important? Because in all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. You know, I said that Peter's creating the, the foundation for the rest of the letter here. He's opening up the reality of what is being experienced by people in Pontus or Galatia or Cappadocia or Asia or Bithynia. There are individuals who, because of the compelling message of Jesus, have been reorientated in their lives, and the outcome of that decision is that they are suffering because of it. All sorts of suffering. Financially ostracized. We're no longer dealing with you because your God is some kind of wacky God that none of us know. And it's, your, it's you that's bringing problems on the whole of our industry. That's the kind of mindset that was going on in the first century. Because you're thinking in this way, you're in the guild of stonemasons in Cappadocia. And because you're a believer in Jesus, the downturn in stone masonry is being blamed on you because it's your worship of your God. That is literally what was going on. Now, we might not be experiencing that, of course not. But the reality is that the compelling message of Jesus causes changes in our lives which will be uncomfortable for the world that we live in. They will. It will result in challenge. It might result in crisis. Pray to God not. It may result in death. That's what Peter was saying to his hearers. This is the reality. Peter is not writing out of some sort of fiction... He's writing as somebody who was looking at the prospect of even himself being killed because he was a follower of Jesus. And that is a, what was being unleashed beyond this time into the population of those who believed in Jesus. It was just beginning to rumble at this stage. Discontent was beginning to emerge. Problems with this new faith. You know, it had previously been under the radar because it was just 
the Jewish faith that came under that banner. But now it was beginning to become problematic. And Peter is saying this, essentially, and this is where we're going to close because it means so much for us today. The only way, the only way that you can be sure that it's the right thing to hold on to that gospel message, to hold on to the compelling message of Jesus, is if you are reminded that it's worth it. It's worth it. Because the inheritance is eternal. And it is secured. So in other words, tomorrow, when it's really rubbish, tomorrow when you're struggling, tomorrow when you're criticized, tomorrow perhaps when you're thinking, is this Christian faith really worthwhile? The issue is this. The call that Peter makes is raise your vision, raise your eyesight so that you are looking at something which is not contained just within this world, but something which is of eternal worth. That's the foundation.